You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. There are Christian books that try to engage philosophical learning in a strong, rigorous manner. And then there are Christian books that are written for a general audience that try not to shoot over people's heads. And then once in a while, there's a book like The Divine Magician, the latest offering from Peter Rollins, advancing a theological agenda that's part Hegel and part Nietzsche and part Derrida. Rollins approaches this complex task at hand with a storyteller's style, inviting readers to a radical theology without all of the jargon, and a challenge to theology that affirms faith. And today on Christian Humanist Profiles, we're glad to welcome Rollins to the show. Thank you for coming on today, Pete. It's great to be on the show. Thank you. Now, I want to start out uh, by letting you explain. I just said you don't use jargon from the philosophical side of things, but you do use some terms from stage magic. Uh, now, That's much easier than German idealism. <laughs> <laughs> you borrow this terminology to formulate a theory of religious, religious experience that's going to run throughout the book and throughout our conversation. So take a little bit of time here to tell our listeners about the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. Absolutely. Well, the reason why I took an interest in the magic um, aspect was partly because I was reading something um, about an Archbishop, Tillotson, who noticed that some of the early magicians would use the phrase hocus pocus at the key point of the trick whenever something dramatic was going to happen. And he realized that it sounded an awful lot like hocus corpus, what the priest says during mass when the bread and the wine are turned into the body and blood. And he thought, these early magicians are making a mockery of the Eucharist. You know, they're pretending that all the priest is is some sort of, like, sleight-of-hand magician. And, you know, he condemned this. Mm-hmm. And I took an interest in thinking, well, what if the magicians are right? Actually, what if a way of thinking about Christianity is precisely as a magic trick? And then I also was reading the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and he made a reference to... Christianity and the three parts of a magic trick and you know that's what inspired the book and those three parts are very simply uh, often described as as you say the pledge the turn and the prestige the pledge of a vanishing trick is an object it might be a coin it might be a dove uh, that's presented to the audience the turn of the trick is very simply whenever that object is made to disappear maybe put behind a curtain and you rip the curtain away and, and it's not, not there. And then the, the prestige, the prestige is the return of the lost object. The trick isn't finished until what you made vanish comes back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I use this to say that actually Christianity has um, a pledge, there's a turn involved, and there's also a prestige. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to get to a little bit of philosophical terminology you use. One of the terms that, again, recurs throughout the book and our, our listeners would benefit from knowing a little bit about is virtual object. Uh, now, a virtual object, as you describe it, is something that does not exist, properly speaking, but insists nonetheless. Uh, talk to our listeners just a little bit about that distinction and why that's important for what we're going to be talking about once we get into the get into Christianity as vanishing trick? Yeah. So, I mean, in in popular thinking, there's obviously things that exist and there's things that don't exist. And, you know, it's pretty simple. uh, You know, like uh, Santa Claus 
doesn't exist. Uh, the car outside my garage does. But uh, it's not as simple as that. There are some things that couldn't be said to properly exist, and yet they seem to make an impact on us. Uh, mm. So, for example, in Northern Ireland, sectarianism is something that you know doesn't exist in the sense of if you took all human beings out of the universe, sectarianism wouldn't be left. There wouldn't be this thing sitting called sectarianism. But it insists. It's something that uh, influences where you bring your kids to school, what bars you can drink in, where you can buy a house. And you might not even believe in it. Like, you might say, I'm not sectarian. But still structurally speaking it affects how you live your life or misogyny or racism these, these are also things that strangely don't exist but they don't not exist they mm. exert an influence on us let me ask this uh you know if if you're not familiar with uh, walter wink's books that's fine but it struck me as i was reading this and as you just now talked that this is similar to the way that Walter Wink describes powers and principalities. Are you familiar with his work at all? Um, I'm a little bit familiar, uh, but um, I definitely know that part of his work, and I would say there is a similarity there, that, mm -hmm. that, that principalities and powers are not things that you can put your finger on. You can't touch them, see them, feel them, and yet, in a sense, they we live and have our being within them. They influence mm -hmm. us regardless. Right. And I mean, to take it one step further into the political, if you organize your life as if there were no insistence there, you're not really dealing with reality as it presents itself. Is that fair enough to say? Absolutely. I mean, for me, principalities and powers are just a, a biblical way of talking about ideology. Ideology mm -hmm. is this this uh, kind of the air we breathe, the lens through which we see everything. And um, we need to uh, take that seriously. Right. Now, when you say ideology, and I do want to set this down before we get too much too far down the road, uh, are you using it sort of in the middle Marxist sense where if you actually get the science down, then eventually you can dispel ideology? Or are you using it more of in a postmodern mode where everyone has some kind of ideology and really the choice is which one is the better ideology on which to take a stand? Yeah, I know I'm, I'm more... Um, I'm closer to saying that it is so, that it is an indispensable part of being human. Okay, fair uh, enough. Mm -hmm. but, however, I I would say that I think there are there are what you could call fractures. There are moments when our um, ideological or ideological structure uh, collapses and and reconfigures. So th there there is ch changes possible and also moments uh, in which our current systems collapse, and, and that's important for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good, very good. Well, those are some of the terms that you're going to be using throughout this conversation. Now that we've got those down, let's dig into the book's theological or philosophical project, and you can call it whatever you want. I'll follow your lead. You offer an allegorical reading of Genesis 2 and 3 that links the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil to the notion of that virtual object we just talked about, and that narrative gives shape to much of what happens in the book. What happens in that garden that, well, let me ask you this way. How do you read that garden narrative, give our readers, get a, give our listeners some sense of that? And then tell us a little bit about what happens when someone actually takes and eats the fruit. Yeah, so basically for me, the Hebrew scriptures open up 
with a beautiful narrative that describes a very deep part of what it means to be human. And um, in brief, the idea is that we are, we are caught in the gravitational pull of thinking there is an object out there that is special, beautiful, amazing, that if only we could get it, everything would work out. It mm. might be money, it might be a new car, it might be a relationship, it might be religion, but we have this sense of lack. We're separated from something and we really want that something. Now, in psychoanalytic terms, the, what happens is when we're distant from it, when something's prohibited, you can't have, you know, you say to a kid, you can't have a dog for Christmas. Mm-hmm. That, that prohibition actually generates um, an excessive desire and the dog no longer becomes just something you want. It becomes something you need. If only I could have the dog, then I'll never have to have another Christmas present ever again. You know, that's, <laughs> that's me for life. Until I'm 18, don't ever buy me anything else. I just want the dog. Um, but the problem is, if you get the dog, you know, two weeks later, the kid's not feeding it, not walking it, and you have to give it away to somebody, you know. Um, you know, or, or they like it, but it ultimately doesn't fulfill them in the way that they think it, it would. Mm-hmm. So I think the story of Adam and Eve kind of sets this up, that an absolutely mundane piece of fruit takes on this excessive um, uh, aura of perfection. And this actually articulates something of our own dilemma. And I'll say this as well. Uh, we often think that the, the trick to being happy is to get what we want more than anything else, uh, whether that's God or to say money. Uh, but for me, it's actually giving up the idea that there is a sacred object. It's, uh, it's actually losing that. Um, and mm-hmm. in psychoanalysis, there's a similarity is that when the child is born, they have to separate from their primary caregiver, right? They have to create their own uh, space in the world, their own desires. And if they don't, two things result. So the first is per, uh, psychosis. If, if, if something doesn't come in that separates the mother and the child or the primary caregiver and the child, um, then, then a lot of psychotic uh, problems result in adulthood. And what what's this is called in psychoanalysis is the know of the father. Now, it actually doesn't have to be the father. It often isn't, but they call it the know of the father. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's something that breaks the, the relationship between the, the primary caregiver and the child. If that break happens, uh, but, it, it, but it's not strong enough, then perversion results. And perversion is the second structural diagnostic category of psychopathology. Uh, and they call this the name of the father. Uh, the name of the father is where basically the child learns that they can't go back to the primary caregiver, so they're separated, but they want to go back. And the name of the father says, no, you've got to find your other desires. And the, the name, you name other desires outside of the return to the primary object. Mm-hmm. And if this happens, uh, then it's neurosis. And neurosis is where you accept that you can't go back, but you protest against it. You're unhappy about it. And broadly speaking, I'm saying that this is similar to Christianity and, and the Jewish faith, is that you have a separation in, ge- in Genesis from the thing that we think will make us whole and complete. And then the second step is in, in the Hebrew scriptures with covenants. People think that covenants are there to get you close to the divine, but actually in many ways they're there to separate you from the desire of the divine. You have a contract with a friend in business, for example, because you're worried that their desire will change and they'll mistreat you. 
So the covenant, the contract, allows you to have distance from them. Or in a divorce, you have a contract, uh, legally speaking, because if your partner decides, I don't want you to see the kids, uh, you need something that protects you. So I argue that actually the whole trajectory of the Bible is to separate us from the idea that there's a sacred object. And finally, to expose the reality that the sacred object doesn't exist. And the sacred is rather something we find in the midst of life itself. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because your reading of Genesis, uh, when I first started reading it, I thought it would be basically a variation of, you know, St. Augustine and the pears, where it is the prohibition and only the prohibition that makes something desirable, that the agent at all times knows that the pears really aren't that great. But what you, what you seem to be arguing is that, you know, there is an ideological value invested in the fruit. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, if, if we are going in psycho, psychoanalytic directions, I can see where you're going with this. On a more theological trend, uh, you know, as far as that goes, I mean, one of the things that I would say recurs in the New Testament is a strong distinction between adequate ends of desire and then inadequate ends of desire so that there would be in fact a strong distinction between money and God precisely because God does have the capacity to bring beatitude. Where do you differ from, uh, and, and I know you just narrated it somewhat, but try to put it in different words for me. Where do you differ from that trend within traditional Christian thought? Absolutely, and, and my last diatribe was quite long and in-depth, so <laughs> a few different ways. Um, yeah, my difference is this, is everybody claims what that tradition claims. Like, if it's an advert, the advert is saying, this toothpaste is actually the thing that will make you happy. Uh, if it's a car advert, it's like, this car is what will make you happy. When the church claims, oh no, it's a relationship with God that will make you happy, what I'm arguing is, that's structurally no different from anything you see within the consumer capitalism. Everybody is saying, we have the thing that will make you whole and complete, but they just differ in what that object is. My argument is that Christianity does not put an object into the vending machine of life saying, okay, this is the product beside the car or the relationship. This is the real product you want. But mm -hmm. Christianity takes a sledgehammer to the vending machine. It destroys the very idea that there is some what I would call an idol, some object that gives us wholeness, completeness, harmony, satisfaction, whether in this life or the next. Mm -hmm. um, that we need to give that up and, and discover a totally different new way of being, which I would call new creation, which I think actually the New Testament calls new creation. Oh, yeah, St. Paul. Uh -huh. so, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, he borrowed it from me. Oh, well, there you go. I'd, mystery solved. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm, you know, I don't know if uh, Paul would recognize himself in what I'm saying, but, but yes, that language of new creation makes sense to me in relation to a new way of being, a new way of desiring, and a new way of relating to the world. Mm -hmm. Well, one example that I w I'd like for you to unpack a little bit, because I think it will illustrate for our listeners how this works, even when the object is seemingly entirely unselfish. One of the discussions you have uh, in this part of the book has to do with inclusion as a sort of ultimate term for Christian community. And you say that ultimately that can become a sacred object in itself. Tell our listeners a little bit about how that dynamic works and what Christianity would set forth as an alternative. 
Yeah, well, in order to answer that, I need to introduce another kind of term, which is scapegoating. Mm -hmm. um, what I argue in the book is that when there's some sacred object that we think will make us whole and complete, one of the things that we need to do is blame somebody when we don't seem to be able to get it. Because we've got two options. We either get the thing that we think will make us happy. For example, you go up to church, uh, you, you convert, you go to the front. And for a while, it's great. But eventually, it, it's not as good as you know you were hoping. And then someone tells you, well, you have to supplement it. You need to pray more. You need to go to these conferences. You know, you, It has to be supplemented. Mm -hmm. Or... Or you have to blame someone else. You kind of go, well, you know, things would be better if those liberals didn't exist. Things would be better <laughs> if those atheists weren't out there, you know. Um, this is fascism 101, is that the figure of the Jew is the, is the problem. The fascist says, we could have wholeness. We could have a, a grounded community, uh, non-abstract, non related to the earth, if only we could get rid of the Jew. Mm -hmm. But what they don't realize is the Jew is not a problem. The figure of the Jew is the solution to a problem that while they have a common enemy, they can avoid looking at the crisis within their structure, that that common enemy actually allows them to have a modicum of community. If they got rid of the figure of the Jew, they would then have to confront their own internal crisis. This is the same issue, by the way, with something like homelessness. We think homelessness is a problem. It's not, it's the solution to a problem. It's, uh, there's a problem in society, perhaps a you know, undereducation, uh, mental health uh, issues, etc. And the solution to that is homelessness. And if we go out thinking that we can help the homeless, we lose fact of the site that they're the site of salvation for us. If we listen to why homelessness exists, we'll be confronted with um, the, the problems within our own society and will be called to change. So all of this to say that if we try to include a new group, for example, gay and lesbians within the church. That's great, right? We say, we are going to include you. But if we haven't broken the scapegoating mechanism, we will just create another other. So, for example, well, yeah, you can be gay and lesbian and be in a church, but you have to be monogamous, right? So, you know, there's, there's always going to be um, a, a, a problem. And what I'm arguing is that Christianity is not simply about, you know, trying to open up to more people. It's actually about trying to smash the whole, the sacred object and the scapegoat mechanism that's connected with it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, again, turning back to St. Paul, I mean, you see this sort of argument when he talks about, uh, you know, the opening chapters of Romans, where in the first chapter he addresses, you know, the nations at large and their idolatry and so on and so forth, but then turns immediately in chapter two and says, and actually some form of a Jewish national identity and an identity as God's people has become an idol of sorts precisely for the Jews. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think Paul's conversion is, is a perfect example of this. So you have Paul who is part of his religious tradition. He thinks that this new group called the Christians are the problem. If only we could get rid of them, everything would be better. So they're like a scapegoat. Let's, let's persecute them. Let's get rid of them. Whereas he, doesn't, whereas he doesn't see them as actually um, uh, resulting from a crisis within the community at the time. Mm -hmm. Then in his conversion, he hears this voice saying, why are you persecuting me? And he realizes that the, the, the group that he thinks is the problem is actually the solution to a problem. They are the site of his salvation. 
um, and he's transformed. And of course, this is how you can read the crucifixion. The one you have to get rid of is Christ. Get rid of Christ. He's the problem. Execute him. We can get back to God. And then mm. you realize that actually God is in the executed one. <laughs> that the, the outsider that you're trying to destroy is the site of your salvation. So I think this logic is there. And of course, um, the theologian and philosopher, René Girard, is brilliant on this. Oh, sure, sure. I hear Girard coming through very strongly through here. So yeah. um, use his name because I actually have not, not really read him. I've read some. Oh, okay. <laughs> he actually into this through Lacan, but everyone keeps saying, that sounds really like Girard. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, well, I, I'll, I'll just add to that chorus and say, yes, uh, you... You, you should read Gerard so you can recognize some yes. of the thoughts you've been having. Whoever <laughs> than me can help me. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I, I would say you're a better prose stylist, so I'll... <laughs> uh, he, he definitely writes like a, a critical theorist. Although yeah. I, I really appreciate his ideas, but man, do you have to work to get at them. Oh, they're all like that. The kind of continental philosophy—it's like they make you work for your for your insights. Yes, do they ever? And I I, I blame Immanuel Kant. <laughs> um, well, one of the strengths of your book, and we've been talking about it so far, is that you know you bring that strong continental sense, and and specifically, I would say a Hegelian sense of dialectic to bear on theological questions. And when you discuss that notion of scapegoating right now you know it is this hegelian sense of contradiction you know the identity of the other is precisely what lends myself intelligibility right uh and here i go talking continental again but another question that you approach with this hegelian logic is the mosaic law and as you put it and i'm going to quote you here quote the law opens up the vision for a new form of life that it cannot deliver on, close quote. How does that contradiction within the life of the faithful provide the energy that promises to overcome itself? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, if I go back to the, um, the example I used earlier about the child who something comes in the way of the mother and the child and breaks the child away from, from the mother or the primary caregiver, mm -hmm. um, that, that's where the, the individual selfhood results. From that separation, you begin to develop your sense of you know, ego and whatnot. Um, so that separation is important, and that can be called a law. The law creates a separation. But the residual element is it also creates a desire to get back what you've lost or what you think you've lost. So the, desire, the law does a really important function, but it also creates this this drive to to find satisfaction and wholeness in a way that's impossible, what, what they call a lost object in psychoanalysis, an mm -hmm. object that we think we've lost, but actually it, it never existed in the first place. Um, so that's the idea for me of the laws. The law does a good thing, but in it, it also generates its opposite. So you say to your child, don't, don't open that box when I leave the room. The child suddenly is like, what's in the box? You know, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the law, which is maybe a good thing, don't open the box because there's a snake in it. You know, um, it also generates the desire. Oh, I want to see what I want to see the snake. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where I think uh, love becomes deeply important, not as a sentimental thing, but love um, is a way, I would say, of living beyond the law that fulfills the law. Where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like if you if you, um, you know, if you love, I think. 
John Caputo used this example. If you love the library system, you don't need to be told that if you bring the book back late, you're going to get a fine. You love the library system, so you bring the books back because you want other people to use them. Mm -hmm. um, the law uh, is fulfilled, but strangely, in the very act of not meeting the law. Yeah, yeah, and then, I mean, I'll, I'll admit that, I mean, I'm enough of an Aristotelian that I still want to say, however, we still need some kind of prohibition because our desires are not constant. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think this is important, is that there's different types of law. Like, for mm -hmm. example, I, I think the Jewish law functions differently from how um, uh, Christians have appropriated it. For example, oh, sure, sure. Yeah. But like within Jew Jewish mysticism, there's kind of a prohibition against talking about God, or well, at least thinking that you can, you know, like describe God. Mm -hmm. And that prohibition is basically taken. It's like, okay, yeah, we can't do that, so let's get on with living our lives. Within Christian mysticism, the idea that you can't talk about God, oh my goodness, it's generated volumes, millions of words about how we can't talk about God. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a prohibition that seems to generate the very the very thing that it's it's trying to um, you know stop you from doing so for me the Jewish law uh, doesn't function in a perverse way that's a perverse way for me is that is that you say you can't have something and then it actually makes you crazily obsessed with the very thing that you can't have mm -hmm. um, and actually I was very influenced by Christian mysticism and, and I'm still very sensitive and, and appreciative of lots of it but I do think there's forms of Christian mysticism that are caught up in um, this type of um, problem that Paul puts his finger on, that you know we, we can't do something, and then that just makes us want, want, want more. Whereas I think the Jewish law is actually the, the better here, is that, like, yeah, we can't talk about God, you know, we can't like have graven images of God, let's get on with just living our lives and mm -hmm. find God somehow in the midst of that. And see, it's interesting, because I see that, uh, dwelling on the negative spaces as precisely what gives philosophy its energy in the medieval period and on into the, you know, Hegel and, you know, cats like that, is that, you know, it's precisely in articulating what it is to have nothingness that gives us being in nothingness, for example. Yes, yes. So yeah, it's I interesting. I, I, ta I take it not as a perversity, but pr precisely as one of those contradictions that generates energy. Yes. No, it definitely generates energy and it definitely generates deep thinking and and actually I use it strategically like if I if I'm working with someone who has struggled with fundamentalism and they mm -hmm. struggle with certainty introducing them to kind of mystical thinkers on a purely um, uh, you know talking purely about trans personal transformation it can be very powerful their first thing is okay God's bigger than I can imagine Mm -hmm. But for me, I, I want to see that itself eventually give way to um, a, a different type of uh, Christian life that's okay. not even saying God's bigger than I can imagine, but ultimately somehow saying even that question is is a side issue. The big issue is how do I, how do I love my neighbor? Um, and, and, and so it's, it's ultimately moves towards materialist theology. Okay. All right. And, and I'm going to differ from you only in that, again, because I am more suspicious, I guess, of the constancy of people's good motives. Uh, and again, I mean, if, if you want to point to me as the Grand Inquisitor here, that is fine. Uh, Dostoevsky judges me all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I guess I, I, I guess I see, you know, the 
the continued proclamation, at the very least, of a God who transcends our own imaginations as, at the very least, putting a check on our own best intentions when our best intentions are actually kind of crappy. Yeah. I mean, okay, you're probably going to think that I want my cake and eat it when I say this. Um, <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> um, so, you know, one of, the, one of the groups that I find fascinating in the 20th century that I think is a real innovation of, of church life, and they're not a church, um, mm-hmm. is AA. Um, yeah. You know, AA has actually, a, you know, in one sense, a lot of people would have a very low anthropology in AA. I mean, you're talking about people who have potentially hurt deeply the ones that they love. Sure. They're not optimistic, probably, about how great humans can be. So there's a low anthropology. But yet, the answer isn't obviously in rules. The very first thing you do is you say, I'm an alcoholic, in a room of people who just accept you for that and who say, so so am I, and I, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. And then in that community of radical grace, where you're simply accepted for who you are, uh, I think that's the, the, major, the major moment of transformation. And afterwards, there's the 12 steps, which are, you know, the, which are ways to kind of try to live into um, a new type of being. But ultimately, I think what makes AA so powerful is both its low anthropology, like you're saying, but also the answer to that is like a radical grace mm-hmm, that says mm-hmm. everything is permissible. Not everything's beneficial, but everything's permissible. Like you can say whatever you want and we will just radically accept you. Mm-hmm. And yet even within that setting, it's a highly ritualized mode of confession. Yes. And that's where maybe I, you know, I'm close to what you're saying because you're exactly right. Then the, the 12 steps come in and I really do believe that we need good rituals and, and, and people around us and, and things that have worked in the past, you know, l- mm-hmm. learning from the, those things that have worked in the past, um, using them. And, and so but my issue is you, you'll, you'll know the Buddhist story about the holy man who went, to, went into a temple um, and he would, like, meditate. But there was a cat that was always running around, annoying him, so he would tie the cat to the tree during meditation. And then it says he died and the disciples continued to do this. Eventually, the cat died, and as you know, they, they went out and bought a new cat from the market. <laughs> After seven generations of cat, the tree that they tied the cat to fell down, and they replanted a tree. And finally, the scholars came along and wrote learned treaties about the theological significance of tying cats to trees during meditation. Um, that, that's the issue for me, is that, that we need pointers and rituals to help us, but mm-hmm. we can't absolutize them. Um, that 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 becomes problematic. <laughs> and listeners, this is what I meant by a storytelling style because Pete just outflanked me with a story about cats, trees, and monks. Listen, that's <laughs> technique. No matter how clever or brilliant the point is, if I can tell a story about Jameis, <laughs> nothing to do with anything. <laughs> nice. Well, well, I want to turn directions here and talk a little bit about Stoicism because when the Stoics suddenly made their appearance, I'll admit it took me aback. Uh, you claim that the Roman Stoics would have loved the sort of liberal Protestant version of Jesus. Uh, what connections do you want to draw here, and what alternative would you set in front of the liberal Christian? Yeah, um, I'll be honest with you. When you you said that you were going to ask me about that, I was so glad you mentioned it because I had to look up what I actually said. <laughs> I completely forgot. Um, I said what? Because it was I was obviously being a little bit polemical. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
but then when I read myself, I realized I agreed with myself still. Well, that's good. Which is good. Um, doesn't always happen like that. <clears throat> so my argument is the Stoics kind of ultimately believe that there was an underlying order and wisdom to the universe. And, and uh, you know, even if, even if things look chaotic and things look like, you know, things weren't working out, underneath there is, there, there is a deeper point. And mm -hmm. I, I say that within kind of liberal Protestantism, there's this idea of reading the crucifixion as a kind of like, you know, as a moral tale or as something that makes sense of the universe, that there is an underlying order and harmony, even if we can't see it. Mm -hmm. And kind of one of the central moves I make in the book, and it sounds counterintuitive, I realize that when people hear this, at first they might go, that's crazy. Um, but it's to say that the cross is... It, it defies that whole idea that from the perspective of the people at the time, the cross is foolishness to human wisdom. Um, it's a stumbling block to signs and wonders that would say that everything's, you know, in God's in control. Um, it defies theodicy. Uh, it, 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 it's a thorn in the flesh of any philosophical system. And this is why I think Paul was anti-philosophy, because because the cross cannot be integrated for me into a rational system. It's mm -hmm. the equivalent of Shoah for a Jewish community, you know, the Holocaust. Um, even calling it the Holocaust is problematic because Holocaust, I think it kind of means holy sacrifice. Right, it puts it within a ritual system rather than making it a, a disruption in the order of the moral universe. Exactly. And so, so how Shoah manifests itself in Jewish thinking is is as a rupture that it's offensive to to give a reason why it happened to to say oh it happened because of sin or you turned away from god there's something about it that just fundamentally defies any attempt to systematize it and and my argument then is in a similar way the cross operates in christianity like that mm -hmm. it defies uh being in, brought into some sort of systematic theology and rather is about confronting us with what Camus would call the absurdity. This is the turn, by the way. The prestige, sorry, the pledge that, I, that I'm talking <laughs> about is the sacred object. That's it. So the pledge of Christianity is the sacred object. The turn of Christianity is the loss of the sacred object, the disappearance. And, uh, and that's why I argue that the temple curtain, when it rips in half, the temple is a recreation of the Garden of Eden. You've got the Holy of Holies, which is where the, the perfection is. You've got the court of Gentiles where you can walk around and sacrifice. And then you've got a curtain, which is like the prohibition that separates you from what you want. And in the crucifixion, the temple curtain rips and we see inside the temple and there's nothing there. In the Holy of Holies, it's just an empty room. It's not all the socks that you lost in the washing machine. It's not all <laughs> the coins that are down the back of the sofa. It's nothing. It's not like a whirlwind of craziness. Um, I think my, my friend Jay Baker used that analogy. He says, it's not like, you know, readers of the Lost Ark. Um, <laughs> you realize the sacred object isn't there. So, so little of life is like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Except that I always seem to be behind in grading papers. When I mean, in that respect, I feel like Indiana Jones. Otherwise, no. <laughs> yeah, you've got that part in the old so that's the turn, and, and, and of course the trick doesn't end there, so if, if, you, if you said, thanks very much Peter, that's the end of the podcast, people would be like, oh, so Christianity is, is this rupture of meaning and this ultimate nihilism, and I go like, no, there's a third part, 
But yes, the second part for me is the mm-hmm. cross, as the rupture of wisdom, as the the experience of nihilism. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, this is why I think ritual is in fact important. That's why I wanted to press you on that because, you know, the contemplation of the cross, which is a you know strong medieval tradition, certainly. Uh, is precisely to cast one's mind on that which the mind can't wrap itself around. Mm-hmm. And what and I, and I guess what strikes me is that, uh, you know, uh, either I want to agree with you or I want you to agree with me. I can't figure out which. But, you know, what, what I want to come to is this notion that, you know, the ritual life of the church is, should precisely have the power to draw us away from our ideologies. Uh, yes. You know, that when we contemplate the cross... We contemplate that that which resists the philosophical system. Yes, now, and this is where you know, in one sense, we are on the same page, and this is why I didn't go into actually academic life. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I started off by trying to create communities, and mm-hmm. still do that because my main interest is saying this is not an intellectual enterprise. It's mm-hmm. this is not sitting. This is why I moved from philosophy to psychoanalysis. Um, it's not about getting the right thinking. It's like, how do we engage in community and communal practices that help us undergo what, what I call in the book the magic trick, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, where, we, where we undergo the loss of the idol, the sacred object, um, and we discover the prestige of Christianity, and we learn to live into that. And for me, that's why liturgy is so important. That's why... Mm-hmm. I, but, I, I, but, of course, I'm not talking about the actual existing church. <laughs> that's the difference is... Oh, well, why not? Because it's rubbish. <laughs> oh, it's not rubbish. <laughs> you know, I actually like the fundamentalists more sometimes. You know, their, their services are at least punchy. <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, I, I, I teach at a, uh, a, an evangelical college that's affiliated with the Pentecostal Holiness Church, so... You oh, know well, the yeah, that's better stuff. And and if we have time, probably won't. But I can talk about why I'm actually more sympathetic to mm-hmm. that than the liberal tradition. Okay, uh, but but, but, but I'm always having to tell them that you know uh, I am not a Pentecostal. I'm I'm not nearly exciting enough to be a Pentecostal. Uh, <laughs> and for that reason, you know, I often tell my students that I am religious but not spiritual. Yes. And it's yes. precisely because I don't trust myself to be spiritual. I'll come up with idols. I'm very good at it. Yeah, no, I, well, I, if you have to choose between either of those, I, I'm religious, not spiritual, but uh, I try to go for none of the above. <laughs> materialist, neither, you know, but, all right, all right. But, but my, my main issue is, is that the actual existing church, in I would say most of its forms, is about trying to unify you in some way in this life or the next with a, with a lost harmony. And what I'm trying to do is set up communities, churches, Mm-hmm. where the object is not to return to some lost harmony, but rather to embrace lack, um, to embrace brokenness, and to learn to live with that. Okay, all right. I Yeah, I guess I... Well, and I mean, I'm actually no longer employed as a preacher. Maybe this is why, because I tend to preach what you just talked about. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, that's a funny thing. Is like I know so many preachers and musicians who... That's what they, they believe and practice. And I, I, I got an email from someone yesterday mm-hmm. who lost their job or who lost their funding because they were too closely associated with, with myself and with those, these ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. But they're right there. But the problem is people are losing their jobs because, because any pastor knows that, you know, like when you're in the congregation, you think, oh, my goodness, if only I 
got to the center of the church. Those guys, they're having cappuccinos with Jesus. You know, it's like, oh, it's ama- <laughs> it must be amazing whenever you're doing all the right stuff and you're the leader. But when you're the leader, you realize it's rubbish. It's like the inside's just as bad as the outside. Right. You know, you and, and, I get, and I guess my contention, and then, and then we'll get on to the notes that I actually gave you. Uh, but, <laughs> but I guess my contention would be that the logic of the divine disruption is there in the liturgy if you're just willing to grab hold of it as it's flying past. Yeah. Will, will you grant that at least? I, look, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this, and this is no word of a lie. Icon, which was my community in Belfast, in the mm-hmm. bar in Belfast, we stole all our best ideas from the tradition, the church, like Tenebrae and stuff like that. Oh now, yeah. We mixed it up, but but we stole all it. Like you know, putting ash on people's heads—that's amazing. The problem right. is, we, in the church now, putting ash on your head on Ash Wednesday is just this thing you do. It's not. It doesn't grab you in the same way. So we thought, you know, unless quite, you do it right. Well. You know, which which for me means do it differently. I think okay. sometimes sometimes it's like Kierkegaard's. Sometimes you have to make things weird again. You have to make things difficult again. You have to, and it just is about doing it a little bit different that makes the the same different and and brings back the the radical revolutionary incendiary heart mm-hmm. of of the of the ritual. And and incidentally, you probably know this, so I'm going to give you a chance to 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 shine here. You know what the gospel text is for an Ash Wednesday service? Oh, I don't actually. Terrible. Tell me. It, it, it is the part of the Sermon in the Mount where Jesus commands his followers not to put ashes on their heads when they fast. Oh, brilliant. So right. built into the service is a ritualized disobedience. Oh, that's very clever. Uh, isn't that great? So, Pete, come on, man. I mean, this is this is liturgy. This is good stuff. Hey, man, that's my <laughs> next book right there. <laughs> well, but put me in a footnote, all right? <laughs> You can get 10% of my drink. <laughs> we'll buy you a drink. That's oh, there you go. There you go. Um, well, Pete, as I read through your book, I couldn't help but notice that resurrection, at the at, and that's at the very least a prominent element of historical Christian theology, doesn't make a whole lot of appearances in your argument. Now, when the turn reveals that there's no religious content to be had in the God of harmony and stability and system, is there any place in the prestige for resurrection and if so what is the character of resurrection as you present it well for me the prestige is the resurrection the turn mm-hmm. is the crucifixion the pledge is the you know adam and eve the the the, the piece of fruit but mm-hmm. the prestige is the resurrection and what i mean by that is in the magic trick whenever a magician makes a dove disappear and mm-hmm. then wow hocus pocus and then they pull out a dove from from under their hat and we are amazed that the, the dove has returned it hasn't returned the the first dove is dead right they broke its neck and stuffed it up their sleeve right the dove that you're getting back is a different dove mm-hmm. but it just looks the same or if i make a coin disappear and then lift up your pint glass and wow there it is no i put that i put that coin there when you weren't looking so the prestige, you think you're getting back something, but very often it's something that looks the same but is a little bit different. And my argument is what we lose in Christianity is the sacred object, an object that you think will make you whole and complete. But what you get back is the sacred as the depth dimension in all objects mm-hmm. or in specific objects. And what I mean by this is the difference between idealization and sublimation. 
to idealize someone, you think they are perfect, they are amazing. And I live in LA, and this happens a lot. People are always <laughs> looking for the perfect other who's amazing. And so they go from one relationship to the next, looking for that person who will be perfect. And they have this amazing honeymoon period, and then, of course, something goes wrong. Right. That's there. actually not that unlike an evangelical Bible college. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from church to church and so well. Oh, no, no, no. I mean from boyfriend to boyfriend. Oh, oh is that right? <laughs> oh, goodness, yes. I mean, it's... It's one of those things, I mean, a fair bit of the counseling I do as a professor is with young men and young women who have discovered that, in fact, their perfect match is not perfect. Yeah, I think this is, it's such a deeply human thing, you know, idealized mm-hmm. relationship with human. Um, but the problem is it always, you know, f- you know, blows up in our face at the end of the day. Now, the, the, the alternative thought isn't just to go, okay, so everyone's just normal, there is nobody who's perfect out there. Like, an example I often use is, um, you know, whenever a parent say, my child is the most beautiful child in the world, you don't turn around and say, no, they're not, you know, they're, <laughs> they're terrible, or, you know, they're actually really ugly. But, but you, you don't take it, you don't, you know the parents aren't being literal, but you mm. also know that they kind of are. And so it's like, what are they doing? Well, some parents do idealize their kids. So the parents who go to their, their school and go, you know, you're persecuting my child because my child would never steal something or my child would never get a question wrong. That's idealizing your kid. Mm-hmm. But most parents know that when they say their kid is the most beautiful kid in the world, they're saying that in the kid's imperfections, that child is perfect. And that's what sublimation is. Sublimation is when something that is mundane, something that is normal, takes on infinite depth and density, but not because you're ignoring the imperfections, but precisely also in the imperfections. And so for me, the third part of the trick is that the return of the sacred, not as some perfect object, but rather in some contingent, historical, uh, imperfect object or cause that takes on infinite significance and, and actually opens up our world and this means god is no longer an object that we love but god is the name we give to the experience of depth we receive in the act of love itself mm-hmm. where two or three are gathered together so for me there's a radical move in the bible from god uh, as an object to god being where people are gathered in love of their neighbor and this is what i think the ritual of the church needs to bring us to mm-hmm. from from the idea that God is an object who will make you well, to God is found in, in being able to bear witness to each other's sufferings and joys and live well. Very, very quickly, it's analogous to therapy. Someone comes to a therapist because they want to be made well. Just make me well. And the therapist doesn't say, well, you know what? There is no you know, wellness in the way that you want. What you have to do is 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 learn to live with the pain and learn to speak it and learn to bear witness to it. And then mm-hmm. by doing that, you'll find healing. So over time, the the patient, the analyzant, has to let go of that ideal thing that, you know, that person's going to come back, for example. Learn to live with their suffering and their lack, not so that they despair, but actually so that they're freed from despair and are able to bear the full weight of, of all human emotions. Mm-hmm. Now, what a resurrection, though, and I and I do want to return to that just because it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the logic of the New Testament, the logic of the cross, so on and so forth, um, has the resurrection not necessarily as an explanation for bad things that happen, but, that, but as a vision of history, if you will, that encompasses and enfolds 
the existence yes. that we know now. So, I mean, it seems like in the New Testament, you know, the logic of resurrection pervades all of these things we've been talking about. Does that vision of history have any place in the philosophy that you're presenting, or would you turn away from that? And either way you go with that, why would you go that way? Well, and yeah, and this is what, I'm again, I'm going to try and avoid the either way you go with that. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, my analogy is, and this is why I, I speak in conservative and liberal communities and secular communities, is, um, <clears throat> sorry, um, that uh, I, I, I treat the Bible like an analyst would treat a dream. If you come to me with a dream that you've had, I, I'm, a, I'm a fundamentalist about it. I take it literally. I take it absolutely seriously. And we try to work out what it means and like what is, why is this so important? Why is this so important to you? What does it reveal about you? Now, I don't, as an analyst, try to work out what bits are historical, what bits are to do with books that you read or a film that you saw the night before. Um, because I don't have the qualifications to do that. As an analyst, I wasn't there. I don't know whether you made that up, whether your parents really did have that big argument when you were five years old, or mm. whether they were actually just shouting about their neighbors, and you thought they were shouting at each other. But I, I bracket that out, and I go, I'm taking this absolutely seriously and asking what it means. So in the same way, regardless of whether you think this is an historical claim or not an historical claim, I, that's not a question I address. I just don't have, it's above my pay grade. What I'm interested in is the fact is it's made its impact in a radically subjective way in the life of that person. And and I'd be, I'll say this, like if if there was a TV program on tonight about somebody rising from the dead, if I didn't have anything better to do, I might watch it. But if a friend's coming around, I'll probably not. Because someone rising from the dead is not that interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of like a bit bizarre. I mean, did you hear that, you know, in, in, in Somalia, this guy, like, rose from the dead? And we, You know, you talk about it in the pub, but, you know, I'm not going to start being, you know, that's not going to be my messiah. There's no Lazareans going around, you know, Lazarus mm -hmm. is from the dead. Um, w what's important is that this happens somehow in the life of people. And, mm -hmm. and so... That's that's the question that interests me. So I'm happy to say, listen, I believe it all. Let's say, let's just go. I believe it all, literally. Fine. If, if that's what you need to hear in order for us to then go to here, and what does it mean? <laughs> and and how how does this kind of affect how we live? Mm -hmm. Like there's a there's a liberation theologian who does that. Sabrino, I think at one point in one of his texts, he kind of goes, listen, I I believe everything the Catholic Church believes. Now let's talk about the poor. <laughs> uh -huh. he, says, he says it in such a way that you go, I don't think you really do, but he doesn't care. It's like, like whatever the Catholic Church believes about Mary and Immaculate Conception, or whatever, yeah, just, just take it that I believe in that. Now, what does it mean for, you know, uh, fighting injustice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I had in mind not necessarily Lazarus, but the idea that this age in which we exist of sickness, death, disease, and treachery, uh, is ultimately not the last word, that the cosmos as we know it will give way to something beyond. Uh, is that something that you can affirm, or is that something that ultimately you can't? Well, again, here's here's my issue, and this would get us very deep into some things, but... Oh, sure. Um, I, I, I'm quite skeptical of what Lacan would call the imaginary realm, which is what we think, what our ego, you know, what we claim... 
Um, I'm more interested in the symbolic level, you know, what we don't even know what we believe, <laughs> but we still believe it. Like, there, you can lock people who don't believe in ghosts in the crypt of a church in pitch black, and there's a large percentage of people will be afraid of mm -hmm. things being in the room, even though they don't believe in ghosts. They kind of, strangely, they're still scared of them. That's why there's an old English saying that there was once an Englishman so brave that not only did he not believe in ghosts, he wasn't even scared of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so what I'm interested in is saying, like, put it like this. If you believe that, yeah, death doesn't have the last word and you believe that the universe will ultimately bend towards the good, but you don't love, then you will not be able to help but experience the world as meaningless, right? But if you believe that, no, the universe is going to die of a cold death and you know, everyone you love will die and it will all end in nothingness, but you're in love, in love with a person or in love with a cause, in love with life, you can't help but experience the world as, as profoundly infused with meaning. And so my argument is, actually, whatever you believe, because you know, you'll have doubts, even, even though you believe that you know, death doesn't have the last word, I bet you any money, there's times in your life when you know, you've seriously questioned that. Now, I don't think you're any less Christian in those moments. And, I, and if that moment is a year, I don't think you're any less Christian. Um, because for me, faith is not what you believe about the world being meaningful. Faith is where you act as if it is. It's the act of, of experiencing depth and density, whether or not you believe in depth and density. So the gospel according to Don Quixote... Yes. <laughs> That'll be the book after the one. Oh, all right, all right. We'll see. I, I've just inspired Pete's next two books. I, I need to slow down here. I'm gonna put a pile of work on his desk. Yeah, well, I think you're you, you to, to, my first bestseller. Who knows? <laughs> well, I think the use of stage magic is helpful for getting at some good Hegelian insights. Like I said, without all the German philosophy jargon. That said, when I finish this book, I'll admit that I remain troubled, and here's why. Your argument seems to be that when we relinquish the sacred object, uh, which is, you know, a sort of traditional uh, harmonious notion of God, we're freed to turn to one another and to love one another, and that seems to be what comes after the pursuit of the sacred object, after the prestige, if you will. But here's my question. What confidence should I, as your reader, have that the other human being is going to be anything other than a mere encore to the magic show? another moment when existence is going to show me to be a mere mark for another cosmic confidence game? Or to put things otherwise, do we really get to the prestige or merely to another pledge? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and there's the theoretical sense of that question, which is like, you know, theoretically, can we make a distinction? But there's the practical element of, you know, even if you can theoretically say there's something beyond, um, you know, this idealization or this idolatry, uh, mm -hmm. Do we ever do we ever fully get there? And um, on on the first question of theory, I think you can actually make a very clean distinction, which I use from Freud, which is for me the prestige is sublimation, not mm -hmm. idealization. So you know that you're living in the resurrection life whenever the the sacred is felt in in the embrace of the actual, not in the pursuit of something that's always just beyond your reach. Mm -hmm. But in practice, uh, you know, do we ever get there? Um, in my own life, I still struggle with, you know, trying to escape my trauma and the terror of my mind and the difficult things. And, you know, it's defense mechanisms. 
are universal. We all have them. And they are there to protect us from the suffering that's within us. One simple defense mechanism is splitting. When you're very young, you split the world into good and bad. And actually, you say there's monsters. There's monsters under my bed. Mm-hmm. Part of growing up is realizing that the monsters aren't under your bed. The monsters are you. Those are parts of yourself that you're pushing out into the world. But of course, we continue to split. If you break up with someone, you may tend to think that they're all evil and bad and you're innocent and good. And that's psychologically necessary for you in the short term. But if you don't get over that, it will damage future relationships. You're not going to be able to, you know, relate to people well. Mm-hmm. So my argument is kind of like is is a very simple one. It's saying that that uh, we want to run from our traumas and pain and the ghosts that we're haunted by in our lives. But that just creates symptoms. It creates destructive behaviors. It damages us. And that that what Christianity is calling us into and um, the Christian life, and I'm not talking about the church necessarily, just just what the good news of, of, of the Gospels is, is drawing us into a different form of life in which we bring the truth to the surface, to the light of day, so that it will set us free. We bring the things that are within us that we would rather hide from, that we conspire with religion to hide from, mm-hmm. bring it to the surface, and that will transform how we relate to other people, how we relate to ourselves, um, and will give us an experience of life before death. All right. Well, your book, and this is just sort of a, a global observation, and it's a tendency, it's not an abs- it's not a uh, universal, it's not every page, but it tends to present the reader with a series of either-or choices. Either you receive the dogma, or you confront the truth that is the negativity of the cross, Either you desire the sacred object or you regard the other. Either you have miracle as a witnessed event or you have miracle as a moral a- allegory. Let me ask you this sort of as, a, as we start to head towards the exit. Do you hold out any hope for theologies and philosophies that prefer both and or even a claim and reason approach to such things? So for instance, should I, as one of your readers, abandon my own sense that I love my neighbor because a divine love manifested partially but promised in fullness in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah is already and always influencing my own life? Or do I need to choose between those two to live a genuinely good life as you see it? Yeah, and I, I, want, to, um, I want to avoid exactly what you're saying, which is mm-hmm. the either-or. The, the either I mean, there's, okay. there's a form of both-and, but I, I want to be precise about what I mean by the both-and. Um, I you know, put it like this. It's not that I, you know, if someone believes in a miracle where the, uh, their their broken leg is, is healed, right, and they go, that was a miracle. You don't go like, I'm fine with that. But for me, the most profound miracle is a transformed heart. A miracle is is not something that you see. Like I, I talk about religious experience. Like it's not a, an experience of something. It's what transforms your experience of everything. So it's not that when you have a religious experience, you experience 10 things in the world, but now you, you experience 11 things. Mm-hmm. It's that the way you experience all 10 things transforms. So that, that for me is like the core of religious experience. But in the midst of that, if someone has an experience that they feel, I'm totally cool with that. Because I would go like, but that's just not it. If, 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 if it's all about healing broken legs, that's brilliant. But 
but for me it's not it's it's the, the true miracle is about like a, a different a new type of creation and again i'll say this is why i'm i'm different from a lot of the the kind of the radical theologians who who claim that christianity is is, is purely atheist mm-hmm. i'm like i think you can be a theist and still be a christian um and that by that i kind of mean that i i it's not about whether you believe in god or not that's actually oh that's a really interesting philosophy question i love that question down at the pub let's have a good old argument if you're an atheist i'm a theist let's but let's battle it out that's totally fine but if i'm an atheist and you're a theist and i question your theism and you suddenly get your back up and you start going red and you start seething and you and you get really angry with me or vice versa then mm. i think your theism or, or your atheism is a defense mechanism it's something that is not a healthy reasoned position that you take um, it's it's rather protecting you from maybe uh looking at doubt or meaninglessness or it's it's doing something that's that's that you need but that ultimately might be damaging you so mm. all of that to say you can have both and but for me it's it's placing the the ones one is uh, engulfed in the other like as i said about jesus rising from the dead i think it was meister eckhart who said it doesn't matter if he rose a hundred times from the dead uh, objectively out in history if if he doesn't rise once if within me right so it's like so from eckhart who probably would would have affirmed the historical resurrection of jesus he's going yes i've got both and but hey it's not just about some physical body dying and then resuscitating that's just interesting it's that that is somehow something i participate in um so that that's the way i would articulate the both and which by the way also allows for people to go through profound periods of doubt and unbelief and still be part of the christian community like i i one example i talked to an elder and she she was doubting the, the literal resurrection of jesus and she was in her 50s just came out of cancer treatment uh, an elder in her church and a, and a, and a, a leader of the worship team mm-hmm. and, she, and she says to me at the end of the discussion where one person believed she doubted and somebody else said i've never thought about it but she started to get worked up and she said if i told my church or my leaders that i thought this they'd kick me out of the eldership i'd still be allowed to go to the church but i wouldn't be allowed to be an elder and i said to her well why is it because the other elders don't have the same questions and she was like well you know i guess they do you know they're smart people they've been around for a while and i was like okay so the issue is not that you have doubts the issue is that you're not allowed to express them mm-hmm. and she's like yeah i guess so because the idea within that evangelical community is that if you express doubt you're somehow less christian and i want to say no but actually it's not and in fact what we need to do is get pastors to say about their doubts, to talk about the things they don't believe, to say when, oh, listen, you know, three days of the week, I don't know if God's there, not to break apart the church, but to actually break apart the notion that belief is of central impor- importance, when actually I think it's a it's a transformed way of life and a way of being. All right. Well, Pete, I've been steering the conversation up to this point, so in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word here before we head out the door. What do you want our listeners thinking about as we wrap up either something we haven't really addressed so far or something you want to reiterate? Go ahead and take it home, and then I will close the podcast after that. 
Thank you. This is my Jerry Springer moment. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I, you know, I want to say something. I, I love these discussions. I love discussing with someone like yourself who, you know, is educated, thoughtful, enjoys this kind of debate, and that's wonderful. But I think both of us at the end of the day want to go, like, don't get worked up about the debate. If someone's listening to this and they don't like what I'm saying, that's, that's fair enough. But the, the core of what I'm saying is whether you like or dislike, you know, some of my ideas, the core... The core part of the book is simply saying um, some of us, and I'm, I mean myself here to be honest, but some of us are pursuing things um, because we're hurt, because we're scared of maybe death or meaninglessness or um, being alone. And we sometimes use religion to defend against that, to avoid it. We go to church so that we can uh, get drunk on the worship, just like some people go on Saturday night to get drunk in the pub for exactly the same reasons, because they're not enjoying their life. Their life is painful. Um, it might be money, it might be relationships, it might be religion. Um, we're all haunted houses, we're all full of ghosts, but we try to avoid confronting those ghosts. And the book is really saying, if that's damaging you, if that's you and if that's damaging you, you need to find people who will help you confront your ghosts. Because when you push them down, they become poltergeists and they start breaking things and destroying relationships and destroying your life. You'll overwork, you'll overeat, you'll push people away, you'll have anger issues. But if you bring them to the surface, they become holy ghosts. If you're able to look at your suffering and your brokenness, you'll find, I think, um, a way of living well before you die. And if you're a religious person, I think you'll find a healthier expression of your religious faith um, and, and it, will, it will do you the world of good. So my closing line is this, if you're struggling and suffering, um, find someone to talk to, find someone who will help you bear witness to that. Have the courage to look at the things that you may want to just push away and pretend aren't there. Bring them to the surface, let them speak. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Thank you, Pete, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. Feel free, as always, to come to ChristianHumanist.org to comment on today's episode or email the show at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. This is Nathan Gilmore with Pete Rollins telling you, go in grace. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.